If you have your copy of God's holy word in your hands, please open that now to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48 to 49 will be our primary text this morning. But then if you also want to open to Hebrews chapter 2 and put a bookmarker there, we'll be coming back there later in the sermon. But let's begin now by reading Genesis chapters 48 to 49. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paden to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. 
Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a beautiful bough, a beautiful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. 
There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Amen. May God bless both the preaching and the believing of God's word today. Friends, out of all the places in God's word, Genesis 48 to 49 is probably not the first place that most people would go to for a Christmas-themed message. Right upon reading these two chapters, they seem to have a distinct lack of Christmas cheer to them. These chapters basically recount the blessings and even the curses that Jacob speaks over his 12 sons. They do not seem to have any direct connection to the joy of the Christmas season that we are in. But friends, this text actually has a lot of Christmas joy to offer to you today. I don't know how your Christmas season has been thus far. I don't know if it has been joyful and easy or sorrowful and hard. I don't know whether your Christmas season has been filled with Christmas lights and festivities and fulfilled dreams or with darkness and difficulties and disappointments. But wherever you are this morning, your soul, my soul needs to hear the joy of this text today. We need our souls to settle in and to rest in the truths of this text. As you know, we are coming to the very end of the book of Genesis, and I think that we can all agree it has been a crazy ride, hasn't it? Genesis has had many highs and many lows. Genesis has been in some ways like traveling with me. I don't know if all of you know this or not, but I have many traveling disaster stories to tell. I have had planes be struck by lightning and lose their power mid-flight. I've had planes catch fire. Ashley and I have lost our passports. They've been stolen from us. Our, a road trip I was on, I struck two deer at one time and had to greyhound at home 19 hours. It's been terrible. I could go on and on and on. But then I also have a lot of good moments of travel as well. I've been to amazing countries. I've seen beautiful places and made amazing memories. But friends, here's what I know. In all of my travels, whether the good or the bad, in all of the highs and the lows, there's nothing like coming home. Particularly during the holiday season, home is supposed to be a place of, of peace and calm and hope. And friends, this in many ways is what Genesis 48 to 49 should be like for us. It, it should be like coming home. Or if home is not a happy place for you right now, it should be like coming to the end of a busy day or beginning a, a new vacation. Genesis 48 to 49 should feel restful and hopeful. As we approach the close of our study in Genesis together, these chapters should give you a sense of security and comfort and hope about your future, about where you are headed and how God himself, your great shepherd, goes before you. See, in verse 15 Jacob speaks of the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. That's the first place in the Bible that we see God described as a shepherd. Jacob does not say that all of his life has been easy. 
He, he's had many traveling disasters himself, but he knows with confidence that God has wisely and lovingly shepherded him every step of the way. And this text is supposed to remind us as well that this same God is able to shepherd us in every way. Friends, the main idea for our message today is this. Our future is bright because Jesus was born as the ultimate shepherd of God's people. Our future is bright because Jesus was born as the ultimate shepherd of God's people. And we have three points. Number one, Jesus is our shepherd prophet. Number two, Jesus is our shepherd priest. And number three, Jesus is our shepherd king. Let's begin with the first point. Number one, Jesus is our shepherd prophet. Friends, have you ever read through the Christmas story and noticed how clearly God seems to speak to everybody in the story? There's angels everywhere. The angels appear to Mary and, and to Joseph and the host of angels appears to the shepherds and, and they speak on God's behalf. I, I don't know about you, but, but when I read those accounts, I think to myself how helpful it would be if God would speak to me in that same way. Right? How great if, if instead of an alarm clock, an angel appeared each morning and said, here's God's will for your life. Wouldn't that be easier? I'm pretty convinced I would still probably try to hit, hit snooze, but, but it would still be better than the current situation. Hearing God's voice makes all the difference for God's people. Folks, where does Jacob's confidence in God's shepherding care come from? It comes from the fact that God spoke to him, and then God did what he said he would do. Look at chapter 48, verse 2. The very first thing Jacob says is, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful. And then he goes on to describe how God was faithful to his word. Jacob's confidence is in the God Almighty who speaks. And, and Jacob's confidence is not misplaced, is it? It's not misplaced because we have seen God speak many times in the book of Genesis. And we have seen how his word always comes true. Beginning in chapter 1, God spoke and this entire universe came into existence. In chapter 12, God spoke specific promises to Abraham. And even though some of them were delayed, God was faithful to his word. He gave a son to Abraham and to Sarah. In chapter 25, the Lord prophesied to Rebekah that the younger brother would have power over the older brother. And that's exactly what happened. In chapter 28, God spoke to Jacob as he ran away from his brother about how he would both bless him and protect him in the years to come. And he did what he said, prospering Jacob. He even sent angels to Jacob to both affirm and, and confirm that God's word had been accomplished. Church, as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, and as we read these two chapters together, which are filled with more prophecies about the future, it should be like coming home for us. It should be comfort to our souls. Why? Because these are good words that are spoken, and you and I have every reason to believe that God's words are trustworthy. These prophecies, all of them, we're not going to look at each one of them today, but these prophecies speak about the future and future blessing. They speak of land, a place to belong, a home, and a future. And as Jacob speaks these things to his sons and then 
Later on in, in Exodus, when the Israelites escaped 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and they read this for the first time, they would have been filled with excitement and hope because they would have been reminded that as God's word was made true in the past, so they can have every reason to believe that it will be made true again. Their future is bright. Even though their circumstances are hard, their future is bright. Church, this should bring great comfort to us today as well. These two chapters remind us that our God is a God who speaks and who keeps his promises. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. But now you might say to me, Joel, he's never spoken to me like he did for them. I haven't seen any angels. I haven't heard his voice or seen messengers from God. Well, maybe you haven't, but, but guess what? God's word says very clearly that he has spoken to you in an even greater way. Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken to us by sending his son, Jesus, into this world as a little baby. Church, that little baby in the manger is God's clearest word ever spoken. Baby Jesus is the greatest prophet that ever lived. And we can, we can see hints of him and God's promise to send that great prophet. We can see hints of it even here in Genesis. First of all, I love how verse 7, Jacob speaks about Bethlehem. Now, that is simply just a narrator's note giving us geographical context in the story, but it is also a hint as to the significance of that place called Bethlehem, the place that centuries later, Micah would say, as, as Vaughn read earlier, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient of days. And then he goes on to speak of his shepherding care. I love that we have a glimmer of the little town of Bethlehem all the way back here in Genesis 48, centuries before Micah spoke those words, and then centuries before Bethlehem would become the place that Mary and Joseph settled into for the night. God's words always come to pass. You know where else we see Christmas joy here? We see Christmas joy in, in chapter 48, verse 21. When Jacob says to his son, Joseph, God will be with you. God will be with you. Those are amazing words. But do you know where else we see those words? We see those words in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel is speaking to Mary. He says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Church, even here in Genesis 48 and 49, we see glimmers of Christmas shining through. And we are reminded that our futures are bright because God's word is trustworthy. Jesus, the child who was born and who would grow into a man and live for us, is the ultimate fulfillment of God's word. He is, according to John chapter 1, the word of God in flesh. 
as he was born as a baby in that dirty stable with, with shepherds looking on, he is the ultimate expression of God's shepherding care for his people. He is the ultimate expression of God's word, which always leads his people forward towards good. And so you can rest in his word today. You can rest in Jesus this Christmas season because not only did he come, not only is he the fulfillment of God's word and the greatest prophet that ever lived, but he came, he lived for you, and he died for you, and he dealt a death blow to your sin and shame. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, Jesus is our shepherd priest. Friends, if you know me at all, you know that I think of myself more highly than I ought. I am a proud man. I love to think that I am a really good guy and that people should love me because I'm awesome. It's who I am. If someone has a problem with me, it's either a misunderstanding or you're just an idiot. Your pastor is perfect. I have no issues, no problems, no weaknesses to speak of. At least that's how I like to think of myself. But Genesis has not allowed us to stay in that place very long, has it? Genesis has shown us, like a, like a high-definition x-ray into our souls, Genesis has shown us the, the sinful depravity of our hearts. Genesis has shown us that, that we are not inherently good people like the world would want us to think. We, we've seen this. We've seen it in Adam and Eve. We've seen it in their sons, Cain and Abel. We saw it after the flood with Noah and his sons, and, and then with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we've seen it everywhere in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now, J Jacob begins by, by highlighting some of the sinfulness that we have seen in the book of Genesis. Jacob, as he begins to speak over his sons, he highlights Reuben and Simeon and Levi's sin. Chapter 49, verses 3 to 6. J Jacob speaks of Reuben, the oldest, as, as, as the one who should have been the leader. Reuben was the firstborn. Reuben was the first fruits of Jacob's strength. He was supposed to be preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but he's not. Look at verse 4. It says that he is unstable as water. That's not a compliment. Unstable as water. Reuben sinned greatly by sleeping with his father's concubine, but then he also failed to lead his other brothers and to care for his family as he should. Reuben was a far cry from what the firstborn son should have been. And then Jacob goes on and he speaks of Simeon and, and Levi and how they are violent men, referencing the, the aimless vengeance that came out of them in Genesis 34. And folks, Jacob could just continue through every one of these sons, even Judah and Joseph. They've all failed in some way. The whole family, including the father, Jacob himself, they're all stained by sin. And church, if we are honest with ourselves and with each other, we should all be able to confess that we too are stained by sin. We should be able to confess that, that like Reuben and like the rest of these men, we are unstable as water. But like Reuben, we are not preeminent in dignity and glory. Like, like Reuben, we have not demonstrated the, the strength and the power that God intended for us to have. You can see yourself in Reuben, can't you? You may not have sinned in exactly the same ways, but you can see the unstable nature of who he is, and that's reflected in who you are. God, God created humanity 
to be preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. According to Genesis 1 and 2, we were created to be, to be kings and queens over this amazing world. We were created to rule and to have power and to have dominion in this place. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us God's original plan for the people that he had made. And it's a beautiful, beautiful plan. Psalm 8 speaks of how God has crowned us with glory and honor. That he's given us dominion over the works of his hands, over all of creation. Just like Reuben, we are supposed to be preeminent in power. We are supposed to have royal dignity in this world. That's God's desire and his ultimate design. But we've ruined it, haven't we? We've ruined it severely. And it's so painful to say, but it's all so true. We are ruined by sin. Sin affects every single one of us. We are fallen and, and broken and guilty before God. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary says that the book of Genesis teaches us that man is both wonderful and awful. And it spends most of its pages confirming this awfulness. Genesis teaches that humanity left to itself is thoroughly sinful and helplessly and hopelessly lost. That's who we are. Left to ourselves, we are helplessly and hopelessly lost. We, we don't like to admit it. I don't like to admit it. I like to think that I'm better than that. But if we actually stop and think of it, we are the exact opposite of what we like to think. You know what we're like? We're like diaper genies. If you are a young parent, you know exactly what I mean. Do you know what a diaper genie is? A diaper genie is a canister that you put in your baby's nursery next to the changing table. And then when your child has a dirty diaper and you go and change that, that diaper, you take that diaper, which is now filled with human waste, and you take it and you put it in that canister... And then you twist the top of it, it gets tied up in a bag, and it just goes lower into the canister. And eventually what you're doing is you're creating a sausage link of human waste over time. And they look fine. They're shiny and clean. I've seen pink ones. I've seen ones with flowers on them. But it doesn't change the reality of what's inside. And if you open that thing, the smell doesn't hide it either. It's horrible. Friends, we like to act as if everything's okay. We want our lives to look clean and polished. We don't like to admit our sinfulness and our many mistakes and our need for God's help. But Genesis has, Genesis has opened the diaper genie for us. Genesis has shown the, the sausage link of human waste because of our sin against God. Honestly, Genesis leaves humanity smelling pretty bad. But Genesis does not leave us there, does it? No, it doesn't leave us there at all. In fact, from the very first moment that we fell into sin, God has made it abundantly clear that he would accomplish the priestly work of atoning for our sins. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve felt the, the shame of their sin and their nakedness before each other and before God, what did God do? God killed an animal in order to cover their nakedness and shame with its skin. That was a glimmer of the gospel. That was a glimmer of substitutionary atonement. There was a death that occurred, but it was not their death that occurred. In Genesis 22, when, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only beloved son Isaac, right at the last moment, what happens? He provides a ram to die in Isaac's place. There was a death, but it was not Isaac that died. 
And then in Genesis 44, when Judah and his brothers are in trouble with Joseph, Judah, as the first person in the Bible, offers himself as a human substitute for another. He's willing to accept the punishment on behalf of his brother. God has given us hints throughout Genesis from beginning to end that he does not intend to leave us in the stink and filth of our sins. Now, he has a plan. It's a good plan. It's a priestly plan. It is a sacrificial plan, a substitutionary plan. It is a plan to deal once for all with the sins of his people and to restore the dignity that had been lost, the dignity that he intends for us to have. A plan to deal a death blow that is deserved, but that will not fall upon us. It is his plan of the gospel. Friends, if you have your Bibles still open, please turn over now to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is one of my favorite Christmas passages in the whole Bible. In Hebrews chapter 2, the, the writer of Hebrews chapter 2, uh, the writer of Hebrews highlights Psalm 8. Like we saw just a few moments ago, it speaks of how God designed us, like Reuben, to be crowned with glory and honor, to have royal authority, to have power and dignity. That, that was and that is God's design for us. But the writer of Hebrews is, is very honest, like we need to be honest. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He means At present, in this current circumstance, humanity does not seem to have the dignity and power that they were intended to have. We seem to be far from where God intended us to be. Sin and the brokenness of this world seems to be winning the day. At present, our sin seems to be ruining everything. That's what we currently view. That's what you experienced this past week. But then it says in verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, say it with me, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The the writer is saying that though we do not presently see humanity with all the dignity that it was intended to have, though we kind of smell like a diaper genie, we do see him, namely Jesus, who has done what we could not do. And then the writer of Hebrews gives us the glorious Christmas message in verse 14. Listen to these words. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Meaning, meaning since all of the descendants of Jacob, since all of God's people are human. We have physical bodies. We share the same characteristics. We have flesh and blood. We have hands and feet. Because of this, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook of flesh and blood. He became a human baby in reality. It's not just an imagery, it's, it's true. He, he had flesh, he had hands and feet, he had blood pumping through his little tiny heart. Why? Here it is. That through death he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And he says that he did this for the descendants of Abraham. Church, Jesus became a baby to help the descendants of Abraham, Jacob, and Reuben, and Levi, and Judah, and the rest of us. He came as a baby. He became a human like us so that, listen to this, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
He paid the price and he satisfied the wrath of God. God's wrath averted from you and from me. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins. We who had no hope. We who had lost our dignity. We were under the wrath of God. But he lovingly, graciously decided to partake of our humanity with us. Why? So that he could die for us. To become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To do the work that that skin covering Adam and Eve could not do. To be a far greater substitute than that ram that was given for Isaac on the mountain. To be the ultimate human substitute that Judah was just a faint glimmer of in Genesis 44. This is why we celebrate Christmas, church. Amen? Because Jesus has interrupted the endless story of human waste and sin. Friends, Genesis 49, it could just continue through all of the sons bringing curses upon them, but it doesn't. Everything shifts when it speaks of Judah in verse 8. Why? Because God has a plan to bring about a deliverer, a great high priest, not from the line of Levi, but from the line of Judah. And that great high priest, according to Hebrews chapter 9, will put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The baby that was born is our shepherd priest. And he leads us through the darkness of our sin into the extraordinary light of God's grace and mercy. And now not only is he our shepherd prophet, not only is he our shepherd priest, but this baby that was born is also our shepherd king. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning. Point number three, Jesus is our shepherd king. Turn back to Genesis 49 now. As we just said, the thread of curses, which could have continued because they were all sinful, it is interrupted in Jacob's blessing when he speaks of Judah. And Judah's blessing stands alone. It is different from all the other blessings. It begins with these words, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Judah's, Judah's blessing is unmistakably one of position and of power and of praise. It, it speaks of Judah's descendants being rulers over their people. Indeed, it will be from Judah's descendants that Israel's greatest kings would come. David and Solomon will be descendant from this son of Jacob. When the time comes, the, the tribe of Judah is the tribe that will reign over all the other tribes. But now, at this point in the story, we don't really fully understand why this is needed. Jacob and his sons are just a family. Why would they need an official king at this point? Shouldn't, shouldn't God be their only king? Why should they look for another king? But even as God is leading Jacob to speak these words over Judah, he is aware of the neediness of his people. He's aware of their weakness and their sinfulness. But not just their sinfulness. God is aware of their vulnerabilities. The chaos of this world. The reality of enemies. 
the truth of how dangerous this world is for God's people. God's people would try to live without a king, but it would become abundantly clear that because of their own sinfulness and because of their enemies and because of the dangers of this world, they needed a warrior king to rule over their lives. They needed a defender. They needed one with authority and power to lead God's people to a place of security and rest. In the story of our Bibles, it will become abundantly clear that God's people need a warrior king whose hand is on the neck of his enemies. And church, that's not just true of the people of God in Scripture. That's true of us today. We need a warrior king to fight on our behalf. We need a warrior king who is like a mighty lion hunting down his prey and defending its own. We are a vulnerable people, aren't we? We are tempted. We are attacked. We are weak. Friend, where do you feel vulnerable today? Does your reputation feel vulnerable? Does your career feel vulnerable? Do you feel vulnerable in your singleness or in your widowhood? Do you feel vulnerable in your older age? Do your friendships feel vulnerable? Does your marriage or your parenting feel vulnerable? Does your godliness and your relationship with Christ feel vulnerable? The, the Christian's life often has all these vulnerabilities within it. In this world, we often cannot find a place of security to hide. In this earth, we often do not have a place to find rest and peace. And friends, that, that's certainly true of the people in Scripture as well. It's their constant experience. They are spoken of as a, as a remnant a small, often weak, extremely vulnerable people, often with enemies on every side or in bondage or in exile. It's actually only a very short season in God's word when God raises up these kings to reign over Israel. And when they do, they do experience a, a short season of rest from their enemies. They experience a short season of security, but it is very short-lived. So then why did God promise that from Judah would come a king whose scepter would not depart from his hand, who would reign with eternal power? God promised that not because he planned to give it to any mere earthly king, but because he fully intended to send the king of kings and the Lord of lords through the royal line of Judah. God intended to send a warrior king who who through his prophetic gifting and his priestly role as well would be the long-awaited Messiah, the seed spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, who would crush the head of the serpent once for all, defeating sin and death, defeating pain and sorrow, and granting life and joy and hope and security. Greater security than the promised land during the kingdoms. Greater security than even in Eden. A king who would give eternal security, an eternal home. This king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is Jesus. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. 
Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. The second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. I love that it says newborn king. It doesn't say new king, it says newborn. He's always been a king, but he entered into this world as a little baby on our behalf. Do you remember Genesis chapter 2? After creating this world, it says that God rested on the seventh day. And as we studied Genesis 2, we actually saw that it means that he sat down. That he sat down even upon a royal throne over the creation that he had made to be like his palace. This world was designed for his dwelling place. And he sat down to rule over it and to, to speak favor over it. But then sin entered into the world. But guess what, friends? He has stood up again. And he has entered into this world as a little baby to accomplish an even greater work. The, greater, the, the work of redemption. So that we might be restored our dignity given back, our role before him fully established. Friends, we all need somebody to fight for us today, to defend us, to, to vanquish our enemies. And Jesus is that warrior, shepherd, king. Even as he lay in that little manger, his hand is on the throat of his enemies and it's getting stronger by the day. The baby is our warrior king and he will deal a death blow to sin and to death on our behalf. Friends, this is our shepherd. This is the one of whom Jacob spoke, who guides us through all our long life, the one who guides us through every circumstance, the one who in chapter 49, verse 25, is described as the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what troubles you are enduring, but I know that the Jesus that we celebrate this Christmas season is your great shepherd and he's able to care for you in every way. He is our shepherd. He is our stone. He is everything that we need. Do you need a word from God today? Jesus is that word. Do you need a way to deal with your sin today? Jesus is that way. Do you need someone to fight for you today? Jesus is your warrior. The Lord is your shepherd. We shall not want. And friends, what I love is that this shepherd and his power and his grace is available to anyone who looks to him and calls upon him. We didn't even have time to look into chapter 48 as much as we could have, but I love that, that Jacob draws Joseph's sons close to him. The sons who were born in Egypt, which seems to be so divorced from the covenant of God. But he says, come near, come near. There's grace enough for you as well. We will welcome you into this family. Friend, no matter how far gone you are today, Jesus, the great shepherd, says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 